If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 18 this morning. Uh, We'll really just be preaching out of verse 14 though, verse 14a, even if you want to kind of get that uh, detailed with it. So truth be told, uh, as some of you are aware, this was not the text that was planned on being preached this morning uh, from this pulpit. I got a text Wednesday night around 10 p.m. from our dear pastor saying, hey man, I'm sick, um, and I don't think I can go on Sunday. Is there any way you can preach? And so as my head was like, no way, not at all. My fingers typed, sure. <laughs> I would love to, to uh, preach and, and take the pulpit. Uh, and, and so here we are. But uh, if you're a baseball fan, and some of you, I'm not really actually a huge baseball fan, grew up a big baseball fan, but I feel a little bit like the postseason starter on three days rest, just like ice in the shoulder. Uh, but yeah, we're going to go for it. Uh, and I say all that for two reasons, kind of this lead-in and intro. And the first is, if, if anything good comes from this pulpit this morning, it is all due to the Holy Spirit. It is a work of the Word and a work of God, because I haven't had time to craft eloquent words and creative, catchy phrases. Uh, and so my prayer has been that, that Jesus in the Word itself would be lifted up. And as it's lifted up, uh, we would be satisfied in Him, and He would be glorified in us. The second reason I say that is to say that our confidence as a church and as a people is not in a person. Our confidence is in the Word of God, right? That the Word of God would go forth and it would not return void. And the fact that Kevin Figgins is not in this pulpit will not stop the gospel from advancing. But should the gospel be removed from this pulpit, the gospel would surely fail to advance. And I know Kevin would affirm that, and that's not a a, kind of a slight against him. I know he would affirm that because if he did not believe that, he would have simply canceled church, right? If he thinks, hey, the the, uh, Scripture goes out and it's only as infallible as I am healthy, we would not have church this morning. But the fact that we are here as a people gathered around the Word of God as the people of God is a testament to the Word of God itself. It's to say that God and God's gospel is sufficient to change us and to make us more like Christ and to bear fruit in the world. So with that as a means of introduction, turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the life, uh, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, uh, Lord, that you would remove any distractions, Lord, that uh, just maybe preoccupy our mind this morning. Lord, would you uh, protect the words that come out of my mouth? Would you protect, Lord, the, uh, just the thought space that fills our minds this morning? Would you protect, Lord, even how we hear the words that are going to be spoken? Lord, would you reveal yourself in the reading and preaching of your word? And Lord, would your word go forth and let it not return void? God, we trust you for this promise this morning, over this text, and over this people. We love you, Jesus, and we ask it in your name. Amen. All right, so while we read through verses 1 through 18 this morning, as I kind of already alluded to, we're really just going to be teaching out of verse 14. Uh, verses 1 through 18 will just kind of serve as some context to add breadth and depth to uh, the sermon in verse 14a, which says this once again, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. William Barclay says that this verse is perhaps the greatest single verse in all the Scriptures. And local theologian and member calls it the entirety of the gospel stuffed into eight eloquent words. So I want to look at verse 14. I'm not a theologian, by the way. I just pretend to be up here. Um, but I want to look at verse uh, 14 and just kind of go th- um, bo- uh, point by point with the movements in this verse. And so I've got three points for you today in keeping with our uh, doctrine and stuff here, if you will, as a Baptist church and a Reformed church. And so the points are this. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. The first is the wonder of the word. The wonder of the word. Two would be the fullness of God in flesh. The fullness of God in flesh. And lastly, we'll look at the difference due his dwelling. The difference due his dwelling. I was trying to keep the alliteration going. That was a tough one, though. All right, so first, the wonder of the word. Now, we'll need some audience participation here. You're so kind. Um, So when I say the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you probably think of... Who said Star Trek? Bro, come on. Um, no. <laughs> Whatever that is. I don't know. I'm, I'm not even a sci-fi guy. No, no, that one. Okay. Um, so maybe don't just... I would ask you to refrain from answering the next few. They only get harder from there. Okay. Uh, and if you know this one, please speak up. How about, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Thank you. Was that Jonah? All right. I'll give you a, I don't know, peppermint afterwards. Um, or how about this one? And, and it, you younger guys should know this especially. And by younger, I mean like 25 to 35, because now I'm not younger anymore. But Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter. There you go. In the front. Okay. Very good. But, but most of you, maybe, maybe not most of you, I don't know, maybe you were just scared to speak up, uh, <laughs> but some of you at least recognize those stories because they're stories that you're familiar with, right? You're acquainted with them, you're comfortable with them, and to some degree, perhaps you even identify with them. And that's exactly what John is doing here in the opening lines of his gospel. John chapter 1 is this kind of uh, story opening and kind of awareness, uh, but on a whole nother level. So when John writes the words, in the beginning was the word, John wasn't just calling his readers into a familiar story, he was calling them into their own story. This is the story the Jews have been steeped in 
from their moments of earliest memory, because when a Jewish audience would hear the phrase, in the beginnings, their minds and imagination would immediately be transported back to Genesis chapter 1. It also starts with the line, in the beginning. And this is no accident. John does this uh, specifically and very much on purpose as a way of driving home the point that the being that John is going to describe for us here in John chapter 1 and the whole of his book is the same being that created the cosmos back in Genesis chapter 1. As Pastor Tyler, Tyler Staten said, the Creator is also the Recreator. But that's not all that John is doing here. So the word here in verse 14, when it says the Word became flesh, is the same word John uses three times in the first verse. And the word for word is the Greek word logos. Can you say logos with me? Logos, yes. It's a word with massive implications both to Jews and to Greeks in first century Palestine. So for Jews, the word logos is actually a reference to God himself. Rabbis of the day would often refer to God as the word of God or the logos, likely because God displayed his godness primarily through his speaking, right? This is how things happen. This is kind of how God moved and shaped the universe. God would speak, right, audibly logos, and things would change. And so when John opens up his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Logos, Jews would have essentially heard John saying, hey, in the beginning there was God. And they would have agreed with that. Heads are nodding. Yeah, we're comfortable with that. We agree with you, John. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on to say the Logos was with God, meaning there's, there's two beings here. This is not just the one God they understood back in Genesis chapter 1. There's somebody else who is here with this God that we're familiar with. And then he says the Logos was God. This is John's way of clearly yet subtly placing Jesus at the scene in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, John chapter 1 is one of the primary texts to support the theology of the Trinity. And so you have God the Father. If you go back to Genesis 1, you'll clearly see God the Father creating. And you see the Spirit hovering over the waters, right? And there's this chaos and God brings order out of all of it. But then John chapter 1 says, no, there's, there's another being there that's maybe not so obvious in Genesis chapter 1, and it's the Son. It's the Logos. It's Jesus himself. David Guzik says this about John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, John was essentially writing this. When the beginning began, which is just fun to say, the Word, the Logos, who was with God and who was God, was already there. Meaning this Logos, whoever it is John is talking about here, because Jesus' identity uh, has yet to be revealed at this point in the book, is not part of the creation. Rather, he is co-eternal with the Father. John then goes on to call Jesus the life and says he is the light of all mankind. And so the reason Jesus can create with his words is because Jesus himself is life. And the reason, can, uh, the reason Jesus can speak light into the darkness is because Jesus himself is light. Next, John says, thing, uh, he says that all things were made or created through him, this logos, this word. And if the uh, phrase all things isn't explicit enough, John kind of doubles down and says that without him, nothing was made that has been made. There's not a single strand of DNA floating in the cosmos that Jesus didn't speak into being. Once again, the point here for John uh, with his Jewish audience is that the Creator is the Recreator. The man that John is attempting to introduce them to is not some kind of new kid on the spiritual block. He is the God who's been with them from the very beginning. 
So that's the message to Jews here in John chapter 1, but that's not the only people group uh, that John is speaking to here. So theologians estimate, and this is kind of hard to wrap my mind around, honestly, but theologians estimate, uh, scholars estimate, there were about 100,000 Greek-speaking Christians to every one Jewish Christian at the time of John's writing. And so John is speaking to them here as well, except for them, he's speaking on a philosophical level. So in Stoic Greek philosophy, the term logos, say it with me again, logos, just to, just to get your attention. Okay, uh, it referred to the foundational principle of reasoning, right? It was the rationale uh, or the rational principle by which everything existed according to Greek philosophy. And so in their minds, if you stripped life down, Right, to its most basic elements, right? You kind of took the car apart. You got chassis and nuts and bolts. What is left and what is true in Greek philosophy, this is what Greeks called the logos. So in this brilliant and beautiful way, John is addressing both the Greek and the Jew here in John chapter 1, and his message is this, that for centuries you all have been talking about me, you've been thinking about me, you've been writing about this logos, and I'm about to reveal to you exactly who that is. So listen up and come in close. Bless you. John was meeting both the Jew and the Greek on common ground at a place they could understand. That's the significance of the logos here, the word in John 1 1, and then again in John 1 14. Um, and, and it said this story, John's message, excuse me, isn't, um, his point is this. That the gospel of John, that the one he's trying to get them to believe in, isn't a story about another Jewish patriarch and a long line of Jewish patriarchs. This is not just another Stoic Greek philosopher to come uh, throughout history. This good news is about none other than God himself. Which brings us to our next point, and that's the fullness of God in flesh. Or as verse 14 says, that the word became flesh. So commentators say that these two words here uh, in verse 14, became flesh, were likely added and John put them in as a way to quiet rumors that were circulating about Jesus, that Jesus was kind of some like hologram figure or he was like a ghost or something like Count Dooku from the Star Wars movies, like you just pop open like the watch face or whatever and there's this like hologram of this old guy. You guys with me? Like have you seen the scene? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you? No? Watch the movie, Cameron, uh, on the weekend. Uh, we'll rent it for you. But yeah, but you guys can imagine. So they're, they're kind of saying like, Jesus, he looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. And John's going, no, he became flesh. This is a, a direct assault against that argument and that rumor. Um, the, the point here is that Jesus shared our bones and our blood. Right? He had tendons and ligaments. He felt joy and pain, hunger and thirst. And that somehow as Jesus uh, maintained all of his godness, he also, at the same time, took on all of our humanity. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. Uh, but for the sake of practical application, I want to touch really on two gifts that Jesus gives us in the Incarnation, in the Word becoming flesh. So the first gift of the Incarnation is that in putting on flesh, putting on flesh, Jesus Christ became our substitute. Jesus became our substitute. He was, if you kind of want to say it this way, He was our stand-in. All right, see, very simply, the gospel starts with God. The gospel starts with God. The gospel does not begin with us. It does not begin with sin. It begins with God, and it begins with God with us. And then comes Genesis 3, 
Then comes the fall. Then comes sin and the fracture that happened and the chasm that was created because of that sin and because of that lack of trust and reliance to, to, to acknowledge God as creator and, and shepherd and king and Lord and all of those things. And we said, no, we can do this better than you. I don't trust you. I trust what I believe and the stories that I'm telling myself and that I'm listening to from outside sources. And so we rebelled against God and we continue to do so to this day. And the scripture, as Matthew's already talked about and we sang about, we've heard about from the word already, the scripture says that's sin. Just point blank, outright, there's no softening the blow. It's sin. Right? It's cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. And because God is righteous, God has to punish sin. God has to deal with sin. Sin has a consequence, and its consequence is life. Its, its price uh, is life. Romans 3 says it clearly. The wages of sin, or what you've earned for what you've done, is death. Right? It's a physical death, yes, but it's also an alienation from the very source of life, who is God himself. This is the curse of the fall, and this is, is exactly why Jesus Christ came. The Word became flesh so he could take our place. Humanity needed Jesus' godness so that he could fulfill the law on our behalf. But humanity also needed Jesus' humanness so he could take our punishment in our place. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. To be sin for us. right? To be our substitute, our stand-in. So that in him by faith we might become the righteousness of God. He says it this way once again in Romans 5 with this kind of beautiful play out of, of, of the first Adam and the second Adam. He says, For just as through one man's disobedience, which is the first Adam, right, in the garden, they, the many were made sinners. That's you and I. So that also, through the one man's obedience, who is Jesus the righteous, the many may be made righteous. And that's done by faith. And so if you're a Christian in here this morning, just let this text land on you and remind you that the reason we can walk into this gathering as children of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, communing and enjoying the fellowship of the people of God is because the Word became flesh. And in doing so, Jesus became our substitute. The second gift Christ gives us uh, in taking on flesh, in the Word becoming flesh, is that Jesus becomes our sympathizer. Jesus becomes our sympathizer. Hebrews 4, maybe some of you are already there in your heads, is helpful here. Verse 15 and 16. It says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And I would argue he was tempted more. Okay, because think of it this way, and I'm going to interrupt the text here and just kind of come over here. But think about it this way. So maybe you and I get a temptation, and, and Again, I don't think this is quite how this works, but, but there's like a voltometer or something, and Satan's like 20%, right? And we're like, no, bro, like, I ain't going there. 30%, and we're like sweating bullets. And then he reaches 45, and we're like, critical mass! And we just give in, right? Jesus felt 100% and never sinned. He was well acquainted with what haunts us and what uh, fails us. And the Scripture says he was without sin. Therefore, in view of this sympathetic high priest, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When the Word became flesh, when Christ came to this world, He was signing up to endure all of the suffering, all of the shame, and all of the hurt and disappointment this world has to offer. And He was doing it knowingly and willingly. 
Now, I don't know every single one of your stories. In fact, uh, to some extent, I probably know very few of your stories. But one thing I do know is that we have all been burned. Right? No, none of us walk in here this morning uh, unscathed from sin. We have all been affected and infected by the human condition and disease. And so maybe you walk in here this morning and you feel like you've been rejected by someone you love and you care deeply about. Jesus knows how you feel. Maybe you walk in here feeling a bit misunderstood by everyone but yourself. Jesus knows how you feel. Maybe you walk in here this morning and you've been disowned by your very family. Jesus knows how that feels. Maybe your best friend has betrayed you in the time when you needed them the most. Jesus also knows how you feel. Dorothy Sayers says it this way. She says that God has exacted nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of the human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. And it is this aspect of Christ's humanity, or Christ's identity, his humanity that perfectly positions him to be the kind of Savior we would probably never ask for, but at the same time that we would never need more. I'm reminded of Jesus' lines in Matthew 11:28 through 30 when Jesus offers this beautiful invitation. Right? He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Let me say that again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Open invitation. Only prerequisite, you got to be a little jacked up. Which I think includes everybody in the room. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I used to see Jesus here as some sort of superhero offering respite to the wounded. But I think the truth is that Jesus could offer us this invitation because he knew this pain personally. That's why he says, learn from me. Right? Jesus had learned something. He had grown in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. A man, the scripture says, and he had learned what it knew, or he knew what it felt like to feel weary and heavy laden and burdened and in pain, but he also knew where to take that pain. And he took it to the arms of his father. That's why Henry Nouwen so fittingly called Jesus the wounded healer. And putting on flesh, the Son of God became our substitute but he also became our sympathetic high priest. Lastly, let's look to the final three words in John 1.14. And that's that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The Greek word here for dwelt is the word skenao. Can you say that? Skenao. Let me just give a, a shameless plug to the Blue Letter Bible. If you, the Blue Letter Bible app, it's fantastic. This is where I find these Greek words. They have like a little microphone thing. You press it and it's like, you know, it's like, G, Strom, Stern, Son of And he's like, Skenao, Skenao. And I'm glad we're not recording this sermon because this would be weird. But if you're like, man, where is this? Like, where did he go to school? I'm like, Blue Letter Bible app, man. It's, it's there for all of you, right? The commentaries, it's beautiful. Um, but it means this. It means to fix one's tabernacle or to pitch one's tent. And this is a direct reference once again to the Old Testament. And so as I said before, God is always intended to dwell with his people, ideally in person, right? That was the design. But even amidst a fallen world, God has managed to maintain a touch point with his people, and he did it primarily through places, 
right? Primarily through places. So God was found in a burning bush, or he was found on the top of a mountain, or in tablets made out of stone, or in the Ark of the Covenant. And eventually, God's presence was found inside an elaborate tabernacle, which led and gave way to the rise of the Jewish temple. But the incarnation changes all of that. The incarnation takes God out of the box, so to speak. It is the reversal of this religious paradigm because the, inv- uh, the incarnation means that we no longer have to prepare ourselves to go to God because the incarnation is Jesus bringing God to us. Right? And in the incarnation, Jesus was changing our orientation with God from a spatial one to a relational one. Jesus was taking God out of the confines of tents and tabernacles and tablets and he was positioning himself in the middle of our mess. He was bringing God to his people and very soon he would be placing God within his people. This is why Jesus said it's better that I go so he could give us the spirit which is just crazy to me. Like if you asked me 10 out of 10 days, would you rather have the spirit or would you rather have Jesus? I'd be like, Jesus every single time. Right, just not in the boat maybe. That's weird. Um, Nothing good happens in the boat, except you get to land in the one time. But anyway, um, <laughs> but I would take Jesus, right? But with Jesus as the prototype, Jesus was teaching us that we would become the new temple. We would become the new tabernacle. We would be the place where God dwells. In the words of the cultural prophet Switchfoot, Jesus was showing us a new way to be human. Right? He was showing us what it looks like for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In closing this morning, I think the application, or maybe more fittingly, the invitation, is John's invitation to all of us who read his gospel, and that's simply to believe. Right? John said this was the one purpose he had for penning this book, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. But believe here doesn't simply mean to pay lip service to. Right? It's not just kind of some mental assent for us to say, yeah, I believe in that, like I believe in Santa Claus. Believe here implies an all-encompassing obedience that doesn't just change the way we think, it changes the way we live, right? And I think it meets us in each of these three movements here in John chapter 14. And so I just ask you, and, and ask myself as well, do our lives say that we believe Jesus really is the Logos, the Word? Do we believe He is God Himself? Or do we treat Him like every other sage who had some wise words to say and a few good quotes, but whose life likely bears very little weight on my reality. Do we live in such a way that we acknowledge the incarnation? Do we approach God's throne with confidence, trusting to find Him arms wide open? Or do we expect to find a furrowed brow and a cold shoulder? And lastly, do we live with an awe and an awareness of the Spirit in our lives amongst us? And do we believe that God and that the God of Genesis 1 and the God of John chapter 1 dwell with us and even live inside of us? Because if we do, I think it should infuse our often mundane, everyday lives with just a smidge of wonder and imagination and joy. Truth be told, and, and you can ask my wife, um, not that she would say anything bad about me on purpose, but I, I often don't live this way, right? And you guys are awesome, but I would guess you probably struggle to live this way as well which is what makes the gospel such good news, right? That the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for, God, the truth of those eight words. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We ask that that would ring loud and clear through us this week. Lord, as, as Advent is coming to a close and Christmas is approaching, Lord, will we possess an ever-increasing awareness of your Spirit among us and within us. Lord, will we just find ourselves laughing kind of for no apparent reason other than just thinking that God is within me. Lord, because you are Emmanuel, God with us, and because you put on flesh. Lord, we thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing uh, in our church. Lord, even that I'm very much unaware of, Lord, but that you oversee and you know uh, intricately and all too well. Lord, we do pray for uh, just compassion for our neighbors in the week ahead. We pray for an open awareness to those around us, maybe who um, Christmas time is not a time of joy. It's not even a time of hope because they don't know you. But Lord, would our, our eyes be outward? Would we not be kind of navel-gazing Christians? But Lord, will we be those who look to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us? We love you, Christ. We do ask that, uh, Lord, your word would bear fruit and it would bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.